This week on Keeping Faith. I think early on, I was like, oh, we just need to both get on the same page about having kids. <laughs> and then I realized, no, actually, I need to be at peace with potentially not being a dad. And that's, that's my work to do. And the other thing about all of this is that you can choose to be parents. And then so much is just out of your hands, too. And so I, over time, really settled, settled down and just felt increasing just acceptance of like, we're going to live our life together and then what will emerge will emerge. But there was less heat around having to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When Ian Ailey and Megan Biella found out they were expecting a child the week that COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, they knew this journey to parenthood would be different than anything they had planned. But there was a time not too long ago when they weren't sure they'd even get to this place as they struggled to agree on whether they wanted to become parents at all. Together, the three of us talk about how they navigated building a life when they disagreed on such a fundamental thing, having kids, and how when they each let go of wanting a specific outcome, it created space for them to come together. And we talk about the faith they have in living life in community, how it's taught them the importance of sitting with discomfort and to keep showing up for each other, even when you disagree. Lessons they hope to pass on to their daughter too. Because how do you move forward together when you're not on the same page? This is their story. I'm Maren Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. And Ian Ailey and Megan Biella live on Ho-Chunk territory in Madison, Wisconsin. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native center or council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life together that has connected you two to your sense of faith or hope, either personally or something that you've connected with together? Um, I think something that has been feeling really hopeful is just feeling like we're already getting to share life with our daughter, that just feeling her rolling and kicking and just feeling like she has a sense of personality already that you can, you know, feel her responding when you put your hand. Um, when I get to put my hand on Megan's belly, just that she, that she's interacting with us and that just the sense of possibility and the sense of just starting to get to know her and sharing life with her already just feels really, just the sense of connection is really amazing. Yeah. Is that the same for you, Megan? Yeah, it's very similar. Um, that's just been such an anchor. Um, we found out that we were expecting about five days before COVID-19 was de- declared a global pandemic. So um, it's been this 
this shining light through all of it. And um, expecting a child has just given me more of a sense of hope about the world because I, I want what's best for her. And mm-hmm. um, so it, it, it creates this maybe necessity for hope, but also this belief in hope that is um, it, it's just a, it's just a shift from, from living as an individual to living as a, as a, expecting parent. Yeah, I'm sure that this was not on the radar or the plans when you <laughs> started, you know, the process of of wanting to have a kid or trying to have a kid. And so has that been an adjustment? Was it easy to like adjust just like, okay, well, I guess, you know, the pandemic's happening, kids happening great. Or has it been like kind of a a, a process for you to come to terms with or to to feel into? I think I think it's been a mix. Um, in some ways, the invitation just to be at home together <laughs> has been really welcome. Mm-hmm. During this time, I feel like we've just been able to be really aware of the subtle changes and and being able to just process what's unfolding. But I think at times too, just the the amount of suffering in the world right now is is pretty significant and. Um, that's been challenging. And I think also the prospect of, uh, both of us really, um, enjoy living in community and just the challenges inherent with COVID and not being able to invite people in quite as easily, um, in terms of being able to just stop by, have a meal together. Um, you know, even the prospect of being able to hold her right away. Um, there's there, it's more complicated right now. And, and that's a little challenging. But I also think that we're uh, we're finding ways to live in community, even even with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think early on in pregnancy, um, or just in times when it was less, because we're at thirty three weeks now, so it's getting real. But um, in times where it was more just, I don't know, mid mid pregnancy or something, there's a little bit of a sense of well, it's our our first child. We've only had a child during a pandemic. So there isn't that ability to compare it to, but I think as it becomes more, more real and, and the countdown is, is, is real. There is that sense of grief with um, not being able to as easily have community around us. We're trying to find um, ways to make that happen, but it's also, there's just very real safety concerns. And so allowing space for grief around that has been important and, um, and also just figuring out practical ways to move forward too. Yeah. Do you have ways that you've been able to share and find community? Because I imagine you're not the only people that are trying to figure this out and answer this question. So I think that sharing is important if you can talk into your experience of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a lot of thinking about who who to have in sort of our COVID pod and um and what that means, how to keep how to keep all of us as safe as possible. Mm. And um and that we've we've practiced into with some good friends and I, it feels like it's so much just about communication and consent and being clear and it's challenging, but it's also a really useful practice, I think, just in general for relationships. Mm. And then, too, I mean, 
we have a lot of people who we aren't potting with, but um, I really just feel the love of community, whether it's we get to see them outside or even just the ways in which people check in and, and really care has really felt like we're not in this alone, even if it means that we can't draw upon all of our community for, you know, in-person support. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also just in terms of broader community too, um, we've both been listening to a lot of podcasts about birth, Megan in particular. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it is just really helpful to hear birth stories and to, and I, I just think, um, birthing people around the world are seeking out support and that's a really helpful way to connect and hear stories and know that you're not alone um, when maybe your close friends aren't birthing at the time or they haven't they've just had a very different experience so it's that's been yeah really helpful yeah I think it's one of the big blessings I know technology causes a lot of issues in our world but right now it has been I think a a big saving grace for so many of us who've had access to it and are able to use it to just connect in ways that wouldn't have been possible 30 years ago or 20 years ago you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I agree yeah so talking about 30 years ago going back then to when both of you came on the scene for your parents and thinking about your lives growing up. I'm curious as to what were you taught about faith and hope? What were the ideas and influences that were shaping your life as you were growing up? And and also what were you taught about the world through the way that you grew up? So maybe, Ian, if you want to start with kind of what your experience was? I come from a family of musicians. Actually, interestingly, both Megan and I come from a family of musicians and then both ended up studying environmental studies (laughs) in school. But um, I was around a lot of music growing up, went to a lot of rehearsals, sat quietly and just in a lot of ways meditated while listening to music. And I saw the way that music spoke to my parents and also felt that internally as well in terms of the way that um, you can feel connected to those who you're making music with and also connected to something much broader as well. Um, so that that was something that I, I observed in my parents and also observed internally. Mm. And also just the sense of community with that too. I could see the way that my parents felt connected to purpose and to, and to other people. And yeah, so I, I saw that as an expression of faith for, for them. And, um, and also just in my broader family, music is really woven throughout the fabric of the way that we get together. And, and um, I guess another layer is that I, I really observed the way that faith was a, a buoying force for my parents and for my grandparents. Um, my grandma in particular, I think of as somebody who was really deeply faith-filled, but also asked a lot of questions and was always engaging, not just sort of blind faith, but very much um, engaged in the world and, and practicing it in terms of the way that she treated others. And I think that that was something that inspired, inspired me. Um, and another layer something that I think both my parents 
really taught was this idea of trusting intuition um, mm. that if, if something is arising to listen and they didn't undermine that or question that they always actually really encouraged listening to, to where you feel led sort of how the spirit moves you. And that was something. Yeah. And then I guess one last thing is time in natural places has always been really renewing for me. And I've always felt very connected to something broader. And that was something that we really practiced growing up too. We went camping a lot. We went hiking a lot. And I think that maybe in, in a way that music was sort of the primary practice of spirituality for my parents, nature has been sort of the primary practice for me with um, music being something that I enjoy and is very much a part of our lives. But um, in the same way, probably that spending time outside is, is something that my parents enjoy and it's something on the side um, for them. So, but I, I felt really supported in, in sort of following that, that path. Yeah. It's interesting to me because all of the sort of four layers you mentioned, the connection point seems like in each one of them, you observed and listened. Mm. And there's something about the practice of, I mean, sitting and listening is is the foundation of so many contemplative practices, that that was inherently a part of just the atmosphere you were in growing up was just creating space to sit and listen. Is that kind of fair? I agree. Yeah, I think I think you. That's that's a really wonderful way of thinking about it. So, how about you, Megan? Um, you want to talk us through what life was like for you growing up, and and what you learned about faith and hope? Yeah, um, I loved I love that reflection that you had about just the four threads with Ian because I see that so much in in you, Ian, and in your family is that practice of listening and observing and that being really a sign of love and care. And I, I really believe that, yeah, that love and care is a, is a spiritual practice too. So um, like Ian mentioned, uh, music was a thread for, for me as well um, in both my immediate family and also extended family. And it was just so built into everyday life. And I, you know, to this day, I can't hear a word without thinking of a song, which can sometimes <laughs> keep me up at night. But it's, um, but it's just it's so just built into my being, I think. And and there was also just a common thread of being committed to family and to having rhythms in our family life that just created a helpful helpful structure for being able to practice loving community with each other, where it was, there was a predictability, there was an anchoring that came from, you know, shared family meals and um, on the larger scale, like a summer vacation together and things that we could look forward to. And also just things that we could rely upon that while not tied to any particular church, just were anchoring practices and um, I think similar to, to Ian's family, my parents as well as my grandparents on my dad's side were part of church communities. And at least with my own parents, there was a sense of, you know, committing to, committing to being part of something, of being part of a spiritual practice community, even if it wasn't perfect. And I think that was helpful too, that it was um, 
that you can sit with those questions and sit with sort of the imperfection of, of being part of a group of people, but that it's still important to show up. And um, yeah, that was helpful to observe and be a part of. Yeah. So it sounded like a little bit your family created ritual for itself, even if it wasn't what we would classify as traditional ritual, that there was still ritual involved in your life, whether it was these meals or vacations or maybe even the practice of, of making music together, that there was, you created a space to, to experience something more as a group. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and, and like Ian, the love of the natural world and finding anchoring there evolved for me. It was, um, we spent a lot of time outside growing up. Um, and it felt like it was something that I, it came to resonate more for me over time as I kind of found my own spiritual path. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious then as to where you both were when you met on your own kind of journeys through coming from these these backgrounds that are similar, but of course are inherently different, <laughs> being raised by different people and living in different places. And so what was that like when you two came together and kind of learning about spirituality and faith and hope as you kind of grew together as a couple? So... When we met, uh, I guess my spiritual practice was really grounded in uh, yoga and meditation. And uh, it was mostly an individual practice. I was part of yoga communities and meditation communities, but there wasn't a, a really a weekly rhythm or a, an anchor of a, of a consistent community that I, I was hoping for and wanting but also was was satisfied with those those practices as well. And then on a relationship level, I think I was really feeling when we met a sense of with regard to, you know, faith and hope and relationships, I I think I felt that I had to be further along in my own personal <laughs> work before I could um, really let someone in and so previous relationships were more superficial because there wasn't a, an, a willingness to kind of fully let down or continue to grow in relationship. It was, it had, it felt like it had to happen outside of relationship. And it wasn't until I met Ian that there was a sense of like, Oh, I can practice with this person and I can continue to grow with this person. And, you know, even though, I could know intellectually that that work is never done of, of becoming. Um, it wasn't until I met Ian that I really felt the sense of this is what it's like to find someone who you can grow into relationship and grow into a deeper relationship with yourself as well as a deeper relationship with your partner, you know, mm -hmm. together. Yeah. That they can happen simultaneously. Right. And in a much more rich way too, like in a, in a richer way than what would happen if I was attempting to finish up before I settled down with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. The idea that, that, that journey finishes and then, okay, we're just, you know, it's all good now. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. How about you, Ian? So I think what Megan said resonates for me too, in terms of, 
being at a place where I was working through some things and I found that when I met Megan, I, I felt at ease with just being where I was in that moment, that I didn't have to be anything other than who I was and where I was. And I just felt loved in all of the messiness and, and that we could be on a journey together spiritually that we could, we could share, share that path, but we didn't necessarily have to be on exactly the same path as well. So, um, and in some ways having some differences in terms of where we were spiritually were interesting and actually helped, helped in that growth process. So when, when we first met, I moved back to Madison, um, which is where I grew up. And I pretty soon after started going to the Madison Mennonite church. And I just really found that that community is a place where I, I feel at home. Um, some of the spiritual practices there are acapella singing and a very horizontal structure, um, a lack of hierarchy. Um, people really share share who is involved in, in the process. And then sort of holds these core beliefs of living simply, living in community, and peace and justice practices. And some of the ways that that actually happens practically are that people will share what's going on in their life and people will ask for help or offer help in ways that typical society would probably think is impolite. (laughs) I grew up going to a Presbyterian church, and I think that often in sort of American culture, uh, there is a probably a lot of other cultures too. There's kind of this, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. But the Mennonite tradition of barn raising shows up in an urban context of people just really helping out when, for instance, even though this is kind of agricultural uh, application, but I was farming and my truck completely broke down. And uh, while I was looking for another car, five different people lent me their cars for, you know, two months straight. And, you know, people just ask and people uh, offer, and it's, it's a pretty beautiful practice of generosity uh, and vulnerability. And, uh, like I mentioned, when I first moved back to Madison, it was challenging time, and I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And like we were talking about before, that thread that you named, which I appreciate, of my family of origins, spiritual practices of, of listening and just observing, I think showed up in that, that mindfulness-based stress reduction practices in a way that felt familiar and um, felt like a, just a helpful helpful tool for for processing. So Megan and I, early on in our relationship, we, we went on a, a meditation retreat together and we've gone on that retreat every year since. And it's been a really wonderful rhythm to our year. Um, it's almost always in January. It's sort of the beginning of a new year and sort of a time of quiet to assess. And and one of the teachers from that tradition grew up culturally Jewish and calls himself uh, a Jew-boo. Um, 
And uh, I think in a lot of ways, and sometimes we talk about it in this way, that um, we're sort of menoboos that we sort of draw from each of those two traditions. And I think that the, the Mennonite church provides that community and that um, sort of, yeah, I guess that, that community. And then the, the sort of Buddhist traditions provides a way of practicing peace and justice in the day-to-day. It offers some ways of, of sticking with discomfort when things are challenging, um, how to, to stay there and, and be with it. And it's, it's very pra- practice oriented and that, and there's also a real wisdom to that tradition too, that has resonated. Um, honey, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, I've been really grateful for the, the blend of the two as well. And just realizing how many friends and both close friends as well as more distant friends within the community, the Mennonite community that just, and really being in awe of that sense of, um, asking for what is needed, um, offering what you have and really showing up for each other and also grateful for the practical tools of meditation and Buddhism to have a sense of, you know, equanimity and being able to hold, hold what arises in community to really practice in that way. Um, because some really hard stuff comes up and some really joyful things come up and, and also just challenging aspects of, being committed to doing things by consensus or living in community. And so I think um, the practical tools of Buddhism and meditation really complement and um, allow for a more, uh, at least for me, um, just a, a more full sense of a, a, a more complete sense of a spiritual practice that isn't just sitting on the cushion alone and isn't just going to attending church once a week. It's, it's both, both. And how did you guys or your folks give yourselves permission to kind of blend traditions? Because I think that that's something that people struggle with is this idea that this is the practice and I have to follow the practice and I have to do the practice perfectly in order to, in many cases, feel like you receive the reward of it. Um, so how did you how did you give yourselves permission together to explore bringing these things together? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, Ian had throughout our relationship had been attending the Mennonite Church, and it wasn't until I was done with grad school that I started attended attending more regularly because Sunday evenings were typically crunch time, and I didn't make make the time to to go to services and. Um, and I think it was, uh, part of it for me was just opening up to, or allowing for my own discomfort with things not being perfectly aligned in the Mennonite community. Whereas Buddhism practices, meditation practices tend to be pretty aligned. Like I don't, at least as they're practiced in the communities that I've been part of, I haven't found all that problematic. I know there are plenty that I probably would find problematic. And and it was missing part of that that really that again that sense of community of showing up for each other each week. And and so allowing allowing the discomfort of I don't believe in all of this, but there's enough here to commit to. 
and then also the the real richness of how it felt to start to have that shared community too i think was a big a big aspect of of seeing how can this be a blending rather than a choice right yeah for you ian was there you kind of had both those things already in your life when you met Megan or, you know, when you started going to the Mennonite church, was there ever a conflict for you or how did you kind of overcome any sort of dissonance you felt there were between those two? Yeah. You know, the mindfulness based stress reduction is Buddhism, but they don't call it that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think when I went to the first retreat with Megan and realized, Oh, this is, this is not just, breathing and body scans and loving kindness it's it's a buddhist retreat i i had sort of the passing thought of like is this okay right (laughs) because i um and then i just sort of i settled in and realized that one of the one of the sort of teachings there was try on what is offered see see if it resonates in this moment if it does if it's useful then you can use it for this moment, but you don't have to self-identify as anything. You can just, you can just let it, let it be what it is. And that there was not, uh, um, any, (laughs) there was no, nobody was asking to be converted. (laughs) It wasn't like, Oh, now you have to change to something else. It was just like, you can, you can let this, let this resonate if it resonates. And, and it did. Um, and, I think that actually one of the things that I find challenging about Christianity is that sometimes it, it, it is framed as a choice. Um, yeah, anyway, one, one of the things about Christianity that does resonate is there was a talk during one of the services back, it was around Christmas time, and um, it was sort of framed as, the Christmas story was framed as, here's this, like, this empire, this, like, violent you know, government that is controlling the land and they expect that they're going to be met with another army. They're going to be met with force. And instead there's sort of this completely different path. There's this sort of this path of, of a baby and that that is just a complete, just not, not even trying to fight fire with fire. It's a completely different path. And that I remember chatting together after that service and just feeling like, wow, that's, that's powerful. And it, it's like just such a choosing a different path from the kind of standard, typical societal, um, butting of heads feels like there's some teaching there that, that feels right. So. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that really strikes me about what both of you have said is the idea that in order to be in community, you don't have to fully agree and that there is value in sitting in discomfort and sitting in disagreement and still showing up. Mm. And I think that that's one thing that nowadays in society we don't find a lot of because I think there's a lot more, well, we talk about there being a lot more polarization, but I think that what that means is we surround ourselves with people that see things the same way and feel the same way about things and we don't it's easier. It's easy to do that now, especially with technology. But 
you're seeing what I hear is is not only value, but there's actually a spiritual quality to sitting it together in disagreement. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I love that. I love that you named that because it feels so timely and um, so important for our times. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And just I think of just that idea of you know peace starting within ourselves and then extending out into you know maybe your primary relationship and then continuing to let that ripple out as to how is peace practiced in the world and that as the circle gets larger it can be harder to um reconcile those differences uh especially when the the consequences feel so dire and also, it's it's a really helpful reminder and invitation to extend those circles even further. Yeah. For you, Ian, anything? Yeah, it makes me think of, I read this book by Parker Palmer, who, uh, the book that he wrote is called Healing the Heart of Democracy. And he was sharing this story of the Quakers in, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And there were some in their community who felt that slavery was against their faith tradition and that they couldn't reconcile that. And there were others who were not there. And um, whether it be because of their actual belief or whether it was because of their economic circumstance, but they were able to stick with it as a community and not have a rupture and a splintering and over time, they were able to able to, to sit with that discomfort, sit with the conversations and find a way eventually to, to some harmony and probably still diversity within that harmony, but, but greater harmony. And I guess that makes me think a little bit of our path towards parenthood as well. If, mm-hmm. if <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that marries perfectly to people coming together to create a new life and figuring figuring out how to balance the difference in that. So if you, yeah, for sure, if you want to talk about that, go ahead. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was a difficult conflict in our relationship for quite a while, and um, and we talked about our earlier early meeting and and just hearing Ian describe and and reflecting on my own feelings when we met of just really feeling like, wow, this is the person I want to practice with and just feeling so much love and so much of a sense of, I'll never not love this person. (laughs) Um, And yet, um, and yet in those early years when we were together, being on different pages about parenthood was a potential fracturing point and a very logical fracture point for, for many couples. And um, I even remember right before we got married, we were still not on the the same page, so to speak. Uh, but there was more of an openness. Ian had, had was much more ready to be a, a parent than I was when we met, and I was 
feeling more open to the idea, but certainly not ready or at a definitive, at a definitive yes. And um, one of my teachers, right before we got married, I, I started to feel a little bit panicked about the fact that I still wasn't at a definitive yes. And she she said to me that an absence of a definitive no is more informative than the presence of a definitive yes. And that was really, really helpful because I could say with confidence that I, that my answer to parenthood wasn't no. Mm. Um, I couldn't say that it was absolutely yes, but I could say definitively that it wasn't an absolute no. And um, in some ways, you know, that allowing, allowing that space for yes meant that when we, w- when we did find out we were expecting, and this, you know, this was a journey of many years, but finding out what we were expecting, it allowed that space to actually feel what yes was. And I wouldn't have known unless there was space for that. Yeah. Ian, do you want to sort of chime in here? Yeah. Um, I, I grew up as the oldest sibling in my immediate family, the oldest cousin, the oldest on the block, you know, and even, so I, I, I sort of fell into this, uh, this role of, of caretaker and some of my first jobs outside of the block and outside of the family were in daycare facilities and, and babysitting and so on. And so I, I had some practice. I had some more exposure going in and I was sort of working under the assumption that that was something that, that would be a part, a part of life. Mm-hmm. And not only an assumption, but also just feeling really drawn to, um, drawn to it, feeling that I had received a lot of love from my family and that being able to sort of intergenerationally pass along some of that love in, in whatever ways we could just felt right. And um, when we first met, it, as Megan said, it was challenging to, to not be on the same page. And I also felt just so, so sure that I wanted to spend my life with Megan and um, just be on the path together. And I think in some ways, I, I really am grateful for the fact that Megan asked questions and um, expressed doubts because I think it gave me, I don't even think, it did give me space for my own doubts to emerge, for my own questions. And I think that when um, when I was able to explore that more and it, it, I think going into a situation feeling like, yeah, I'm all in, this is going to be great is one thing, but then sometimes you can be taken off guard when things aren't just 100% great. Mm. And I think that by doing some work together ahead of time about the full spectrum of human experience that will be being parents, that I think prepared our, our collective hearts for being parents in a way that I'm grateful for. And in general, I feel like the invitation is often offered to explore something in its in its honest and sort of rawness and that um, I really appreciate about sharing life with Megan <laughs> um, and I guess long story short I felt a softening of my heart around not just 
I, I think that I, it started to shift from feeling, I think early on I was like, oh, we just need to both get on the same page about having kids. <laughs> and then I realized, no, actually I need to be at peace with potentially not being a dad. And, and that's, that's my work to do. And um, the other thing about all of this is that you can choose to be parents and then so much is just out of your hands too. And so, um, so I think I, over time really settled, settled down and just felt increasing just acceptance of like, we're going to live our life together. And then what will emerge will emerge. And, um, we continue to have conversations with it. We continue to go see counselors about it periodically. Um, but it was, there was less heat around having to make a decision and we just sort of sat with it. And I guess similar to some of the other sitting with discomfort that we've talked about, probably the, the height of my freaking out was when I turned 30. Um, <laughs> my mom was born in 1955 and she had me in 85 the day after her birthday when she was 30. And, uh, and I was like, okay, 30, that's when you have kids <laughs> and we're Gemini. And I was just like, yeah, there's just this rhythm. And it's like on the, on the fives and the tens. Cause then my sister was born in 90. Um, and ironically now here we are in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still as fast as time. But that wasn't planned. So, um, but anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what Ian talked about with his practice of taking off the gas pedal allowed space for me to, to be open to the possibility of parenthood. And, um, and another really big inexplicable thing that, I'm sure was aided by all of the intellectualizing and processing that we did, but was when my paternal grandmother, my grandma passed, um, I can't remember the year, but it was not long before something shifted for me where it, it almost felt like this generational passing of motherhood where I felt just more open than I'd ever have been and not in an intellectual way, just in a, in an energetic way, in a kinesthetic felt sense of, I think I might want to try to have kids. <laughs> um, and, and it was interesting because it was sort of concurrent with Ian doing his own practice of coming at peace with the possibility of just that this is out of our, out of our control. And we talk about, everything together. We process everything. And I don't think I talked about this shift that I was experiencing for probably three months. I talked to my sister and a couple close friends, um, but I hadn't talked to him because there were, it just felt so consequential and weighty. And like, and I, I wanted to like try it out, saying it out loud to people to really to test this. How do I feel? And, and then eventually it did come up, but not like really in a formal way. And we just realized like, are just a lot more aligned. And interestingly, in that period of time, whatever it was, two or three months, it didn't come up really as a conflict either, because it was it was just something, again, beyond our control that just had shifted. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me, Megan, in that that you you went to the community to then test out yeah. <laughs> how you felt about this. <laughs> 
there's that like there's that aspect too yeah i think i think that process again of like sounded like you came to a place where you had faith in your relationship rather than needing an answer for a specific question or a certain outcome for your lives. And that regardless of what was going to come, you, you had faith that you two could figure it out through whatever it was. And so I'm just curious as to if that was the way you sensed it or if that's what you came to or, or what that, that process was like for you. Yeah, I think, um, well, and it's, it's almost, it's almost challenging too, because there's been such, such a shift in being pregnant and expecting that there's just this sense of, wow, I can't imagine doing this with anyone else. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the groundwork of our relationship of just that there's a whole nother dimension of love and support and solidarity and, just being in it together that come has come with this time for us. Um, and I do think um, in one of those counseling sessions, uh, the counselor had said something about that. I think something that we have grown into and has felt just I think in some ways innate, but just naming it was helpful too, is that it's not this zero sum game of like, okay, well I did the dishes, you bring in the chickens, which is an oftentimes a division of labor, but it's not this zero sum, like keeping track that there's something bigger that's about like the relationship. So there's, you know, there's my needs, there's Ian's needs, and then there's the relationship needs and that in nurturing the relationship needs, those overlapping needs that there's, it's almost a greater sum of it of, than of the individual parts. Yeah. Yeah. I see you nodding your head, Ian. Does that resonate with you too? <laughs> it does. It does. And well, I guess just one other detail of, of the process that I think out of that space of trust in what will emerge will emerge. Once we had sort of allowed that possibility we were able to get pregnant without much effort. It, it was not something, and that just felt like such a, a gift for the fact that there was almost a, <laughs> a birthing process to get to that place. There was strain and contraction and uh, waves upon waves of processing that once there was that sort of energetic shift that Megan described, and, and it really was an energetic shift in both of us. Then just all of a sudden there was a baby that was in process and in our lives. And that just, um, just felt like such a lesson in, in trust and just a deep gratitude for things that we can't plan. There are things in this world that we can plan and there are things that we can't. And like, and it was a mix with this process. I think that we both, you know, we both did a lot of intellectualizing and planning. And then we also just trusted in that. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was helpful. So I'm curious, what would you two say to other couples or, or potential parents or people trying to figure out whether they want to bring a new life into the world or hold space for a new life in their homes? 
what advice would you give to walking through that process, thinking through that process and working through that with your partner? I found it really helpful to have the invitation to express my doubts and to talk through that that full spectrum of experience of it, because in some ways it felt like a more real consideration. It was not just making an argument for something. It was truly considering with my whole heart, what does this actually mean? And I guess I would encourage people to, to explore what is going to be boring and what's going to be frustrating and what's going to be repetitive. And then maybe for those who are feeling like, oh, this is going to be a slog, then exploring, like, what about that rhythm is going to be life-giving? You know, I think that just the invitation to kind of explore that reciprocal, I think, was helpful, at least for us. Yeah. Yeah, I would add, too, that, um, I mean, so much about, so much of it, I think, is having practices and a foundation and in your relationship to be able to weather the storm. I mean, this is uncharted territory for us. So, you know, ask, ask us in six months as well, maybe, but, um, but just to really have a, um, a commitment to, to process and to seeing each other and seeing each other's strengths. And I think that that seeing of, like I mentioned before, of just that, that aspect of there's, there's your, your own individual needs, there's the in individual needs of your partner, and then there's the needs of the relationship. And that inherently bringing in a, a child into your life, then the permutations, all they, there's a lot more permutations of relationships that then have to be cared for. And so the, I think both that foundation and then the realism of how that, how that shifts and how, how that's going to change um, one piece of advice that we've, that we've gleaned from, from podcasts that we've started to implement and fully anticipate in, um, implementing more is just that idea that, you know, you might have been able to spend a whole weekend together or have you know, very legitimate date nights and to find time for date moments. I, um, has really resonated for both of us of just like, then you can for sure go um, never go a week without having at least some date moments, even if it's just a five minute back rub or something, but just that there's moments of intimacy and really seeing each other and um, attending and nurturing that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you hope now for your child and, and what do you hope to share with your child about faith and hope and how you got to this place in your life that was a really special moment just reflecting upon that question where speaking of sort of energetically being aligned was uh just to think about you know we have these more formal practices of being part of the Mennonite community and having a mindfulness mindfulness and and Buddhist meditation practice and that what arose, what arises for both of us is really a, a commitment and nurturing a love for the natural world. And just that, that being the anchor, um, observing the seasons, camping, raising food, uh, living with plants, and 
to speak to sort of Ian's growing up too, that continued observation and listening, but in this context of being really embedded and part of the natural world and that, you know, the, the specifics of whether or not our child goes to Christian education at the Mennonite church and whether, or whether we do some sort of formal, you know, I don't know what sort of mindfulness training they have for children, but <laughs> whatever that may look like that, that, that feels like details that can emerge later, but that, um, there's without a doubt a commitment to, to nurturing and raising a child that, um, that we practice being, you know, citizens of the earth and stewards of the earth and not feeling separate from that. Yeah. For you too, Anne? Yeah, we, we were on a walk together in a beautiful place near our, where we live and we're thinking through these, these questions and that arose for both of us. And mm. um, just to add to it, just, potentially introducing language of, of speaking about trees and plants uh, with, you know, pronouns that, that acknowledge that they're beings and, um, and not in an entirely hippy dippy way, (laughs) but like sort of straddling both worlds of like, sometimes it's okay to call a tree an it, but other times it's okay to call her she and and to think of her as a sibling. And we both read the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Mm-hmm. And it just resonated so much. It sort of gave words to something that I think both of us were feeling intuitively for much of our lives. And and I think it you know, she she speaks of just shared life with plants and just this this sense of respect and our mutual well-being are, are tied, and and that I think I, I guess one thing that I'm excited about in terms of being a dad is to to find where our daughter is curious, and then to sort of nurture that curiosity and um, to nudge towards not just the sort of standard ways of, of thinking about things, not resisting some of the sort of cultural norms that teach us to to treat their earth like something to be used um, or to teach us that just all sorts of sort of gnarly things that are taught in society to sort of undermine some of those, those messaging. We've been, you know, in this current moment, you know, I think through all of our lives, we've been thinking about ways to resist racism, but I think particularly right now, it's something that we've been thinking a lot about with the Black Lives Matter movement and something that has been helpful to reflect on is that I think often People don't talk about race with their kids and they, they say, oh, it's because it's too heavy or it's, it's, it's not, um, they're not developmentally at the stage where they can synthesize what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I think often what it comes down to is the discomfort of, of parents with the topic. And I, I guess we've, we've talked a lot about this, just that we're feeling there's an invitation to, to do our own work too, to like, you know, to be really exploring our own ways in which we are, are enforcing sort of societal structural racism and finding ways of addressing that so that we can in as many ways as we can 
keep from passing on that sort of generational trauma and knowing that full well that it's going to happen, but what we can do is, is just work with it and try. And um, I think that that intergenerational teaching of norms is something that feels like an enormous responsibility, but also that there's quite a bit of hope in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching your, your child to sit with discomfort right from the beginning. Yeah. And the opportunity as well to just, I think there's so many times where I forget that what I've been socialized into is, is only one way of looking at things. And what better way than a child in your life to remind you that it, the way that you see things is not the only way. Um, and so that mutual learning process just feels like such an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. So as an allegiance or duty to something, a belief or trust in something greater than yourself, or something that you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each of these parts of the definition to you as a question, and you can answer individually or collectively, whatever works for you as we come to them. So uh, the first question is, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? Well, and we've talked about this throughout, but just this, there's this an unwavering commitment to living in relationship with plants and, um, and just that there's these rhythms in the, se- in the season that become more and more um, rooted in us year after year. So it's, you know, December, January is seed catalog time and March is starting seeds and April is planting the cold hardy plants and May is the ones that are not tolerant to frost and then it's all the way through until sometimes November or December. It's harvesting and raising and caring for these these plants and then there's the, the perennial rhythms, the longer relationships with trees and shrubs and um, and wild crafting and, and how that relationship has taught us the importance of allowing enough space so that there can be mutual care and that that extends beyond the relationship with plants to other parts of our life that um, there needs to be space. There needs to be space in order to actually show up. And so on a practical sense that we, at one time we were coming back from the garden and was like, we could either have a dog or a garden. <laughs> um, and we have a dog niece. He and sister has a dog and that's lovely. Um, but just that because of the commitment that we show and wa- want to show and want to have to the plants in our lives, it means that there are other aspects that, are just not um, wise to take on. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So what do you believe in or trust 
that is greater than yourself? I think a faith in um, that if you leave a space, that that what emerges will be the right thing that emerges. Um, that sometimes we don't know what's coming, and that can be scary. But also sometimes we don't know what the what will lead to what. And there's this parable. I think it might be a Zen parable, where there's this this old farmer. And she lives in this village. And one day a horse comes to her field and her neighbors come to her and say, oh, you're so lucky. You, you, know, you have this new horse. And she's like, well, we'll see. And then, um, you know, a couple of weeks later, her only son is trying to ride the horse and he falls off and he breaks his leg. And all of her neighbors come and say, oh, what awful luck. This is just awful. And she says, well, We'll see. And then a couple of weeks later, war breaks out in the land and the army comes to recruit all the, the young people to fight. And her son can't go because he has a broken leg. And again, they come and say, oh, you're so lucky. And she says, well, we'll see. And it just, it, it's sort of this, this sense of we, we don't know. And I, I think that that's something that has been, uh, I think particularly right now, um, it's easy to feel quite a bit of grief in the political circumstance that we find ourselves in, in the public health circumstance, the structural racism, all of these things. And it's hard for me to believe this 100% right now. I have some doubt in saying this, but I, I also have faith that sometimes out of great suffering, there can be, there can be healing that we didn't realize that we we couldn't get to that place if it were not for going through some, some challenge. And yeah. so I guess I have, we, and we, we talked about this too, of just um, another way that it shows up is quitting a job or working less, sometimes not filling your plate to the full capacity can be a really scary thing, but it's trusting what will emerge if I only work 70% of my FTE. <laughs> yeah. And so what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? I think um, something that I like about this question is the challenge of it's, it's almost like the thing that's hard to believe is maybe something that I also believe without a shadow of a doubt, if that makes sense. But um, so what, what emerged for me was that everything is temporary and it's in that grasping or desiring for control or for answers that, um, that we suffer a lot more than if we live in a sense of, you know, this is what's happening now and, um, whatever, whatever it may be. And I say that to myself as a soon to be a new parent of a, newborn and um, knowing that that it's going to be challenging to practice, but just that I, I do really feel that there's a, a, a wisdom in that and that, and a truth in that, that, um, and also a letting go that sort of complements what Ian was talking about of like allowing space for emergence. Yeah. 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 The, the thing that came up for me was this, idea 
that I think comes out of the Quaker tradition of the God in everyone, that no matter how challenging somebody's personality might be, no matter how much harm they have caused, that there's some redeeming force in, in them, that there is some good and that um, there's potential for, for healing of that, that breakage from, from society, from um, internally. Um, it, it's not to say that you don't need to have boundaries with people that are problematic or that are going to cause harm. Cause I think that sometimes that can actually be allow that God in them to emerge. But, uh, but I, I do believe that even if there are causes and conditions that are making situations difficult, that essentially there's something good in, in everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you two have a practice, a spiritual practice that you do together regularly in your life? It could be daily, weekly, or monthly that helps you stay connected to your sense of faith or hope. Yeah, we had, um, and I'm not even sure exactly what, why we decided to do this, but um, in New Year's of 2017, we were both nearing the end of grad school. So it was kind of a transitional point in our lives and contemplating getting married and also coming off some challenging times. Um, most, I don't fully remember, but I'm sure that some of the conflict was around uh, whether or not to be parents. <laughs> um, and we sat down and we each created a list of our, of some intentions that we wanted to live into and I think we even maybe thought we were going to do a list of shared intentions and individual intentions. And, and then we, um, we read them to each other and it was almost like playing bingo. It was like, Oh, I had that on my list too. And it was a really big shift in our relationship of feeling like, Whoa, we've really like our vision for, for our lives, which, Again, like, I don't think we really specified exactly. I don't fully remember, but whether that was shared or individual, I think maybe it was a combination of, of both, but just that there was such a shared vision for um, how we wanted to live our lives together. And coincidentally, or maybe not so much, one of our intentions was complement each other as parents-to-be. And it was just this, like, opening to that. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think maybe one distinction for us between a goal and an intention is that a goal feels like there's some attachment to it, whereas an intention feels like there's an openness to something to emerge that you hadn't imagined. And similar to some of the things we talked about before, um, just that there's a uh, you may be heading in that direction. You may be nudging the universe in that direction, but but it's also listening and checking in with what's happening as well. And um, there's less rigidity to it. And so, yeah, it's it's not that grasping a particular outcome. It's holding the open hand for what might fall yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. So, is this something that you? has it become a like a regular practice for you or something that you check in with seasonally or that has evolved over time? It, it was interesting. We initially thought this would be something that we would do annually, that every year around New Year's, we would 
make our intentions for the year. And the next year we sat down and realized that there were some minor tweaks, but we largely were still sort of in a similar place and realized that this may be a practice that is particularly helpful during moments of transition, Mm. Um, that during sort of a time of discernment, during a time of transition, that 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 this could be a helpful tool. And what was interesting, right after we created the intentions, we would read them aloud to one another, alternating each month. And um, we still do that now, um, maybe not with quite the same frequency, but it's helpful to affirm them and to check in. Does this still hold? Is this something that we want to adjust a little bit? And when we got married, we used sort of a adapted version of those intentions as our sort of in place of what normally people would use as their vows. Mm-hmm. And it just was really meaningful to, to have that not just be something that we created for the, the wedding itself, but something that we sort of live with and check in with regularly. Um, one other layer to this was that, like most things in life, we completely didn't create this idea. <laughs> we have close friends that um, they farm and they, in their kitchen where they spend a lot of time, they have some intentions that they'd written for their shared life together. And then we have other friends that we would cat sit for. And they also had their version of this uh, in their, in their bedroom. And so we, you know, drew our inspiration from friends that we, that we share life with. From the community. <laughs> they had um, some intentions for their cats as well. No. <laughs> Everyone was included. <laughs> so what does, engaging in this practice bring each of you individually and what do you feel it brings you as a couple? I think there's a sense of, um, I mean, I think about choices that we make in terms of work and livelihood and um, how we care for our bodies and how we interact with friends and family and how it's both shared, but that there's, there's a commitment to, to individually, um, living into those intentions as well as the the shared practice of living into those intentions. Um, but it's very much been a guiding force in deciding, you know, how we want to parent and what that means for our, our work and how much we want to work. And, um, and also what that means on, on a daily basis too, of um, how we want to show up for each other and, our choice is to to have work be meaningful, but also not be completely an all-consuming aspect of our lives. And and that's one example of how it's it's just been a guide a, a guiding force and a guiding commitment that when there have been inflection points and choices to be made, that we can really check in and be like, is this consistent? And and it's not necessarily again with an intention feeling like an open open hand. Um, that it's also an invitation to be like, does this fit with the intention and or and or does the intention need to shift in some way? But having that guidance in any sort of discernment that we make for individual choices and shared shared choices. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Ian? I I think I can I can cover it. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you can find Ian and Megan's intention-setting practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to them guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our amazing music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk with Kayla Rao about her life as an outsider, traveling the world as the daughter of Canadian diplomats, and now raising a family in a faith tradition she doesn't share, and how all of this has made radical empathy her spiritual practice. So until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.